Prior to the summer of 2020, the intersection of 38th Street and Chicago Avenue in Minneapolis was an urban intersection like so many others. It had nothing particularly notable about it and would have been driven through and passed by by thousands of drivers and pedestrians on any given day without a second thought. And yet, in the course of 2020, it became something very different. It became the type of space recognizable from cultures around the world as a pilgrimage site. It became a place to which visitors flocked from far away, and which they visited in tones of hushed reverence, brought uh, tokens to leave there, to leave a record of their uh, contact with this transcendent and overpowering place that made them feel ever so briefly separate and in a different realm from their everyday lives. In other words, the intersection of 38th Street and Chicago Avenue in Minneapolis became a sacred space, and it remains that way today, cordoned off from traffic and tended to by a group of local activists who we might think of as like a priesthood who have um, take it upon themselves to preserve the sacred aura of this space. So I'm talking, of course, about the place where in the early summer of 2020, George Floyd died under the knee of a Minneapolis policeman, Derek Chauvin, who was recently found guilty of murder. So, because that event triggered a massive wave of protests, both nationally and worldwide. It's not surprising that the location where the triggering incident occurred has become so um, fascinating and appealing as a place to visit to make that experience that many of us had of viewing this video remotely, um, somehow more real, right, to, to bring it closer to home. And yet, when people visit, what they describe is a, a feeling of the sacred, of the transcendent, of being in touch with something that takes them out of their ordinary existences and onto another plane. So this sort of experience is not dissimilar from what the adherents of all of the major world religions seek when they visit the sacred sites associated with the history of those religions. We might think of the most famous being um, Rome and Jerusalem and Mecca, but of course there are many others. And what's remarkable in the case of this, again, humble and otherwise undistinguished intersection is that over the course of 2020, all of us could observe the genesis of a sacred space. We could observe how a place that, in the terms of the historian of religion, Mircea Eliadi would have been called, would have been considered profane, not in any pejorative sense, simply in the sense of lacking any sacred dimension. Um, 
transfigured and and metamorphosed into a sacred space that, again, magnetically attracts visitors and will presumably continue to do so. So this is remarkable in part because we live in a world where ostensibly the secular values of imminence, um, commerce, and um, other, you know, completely non-religious priorities would appear to prevail. And where, you know, pilgrimage sites like uh, Mecca or Jerusalem might seem strangely relegated to the past under ordinary circumstances. And yet that that proves not to be true, right? It, it, it seems that we still live in a world in which it is possible to generate the sacred with its entire attendant aura. So this problem of how it is that the profane or the ordinary or the everyday can be transfigured into the sacred is the problem that is at the center of René Girard's second major book, Violence and the Sacred, from 1972. So this book appeared about 10 years after his first book, Deceit, Desire, and the Novel, and marked a turning point in the direction of his thinking. Although, as I will discuss, there are also a number of notable continuities with his earlier thinking. At the point when he wrote Violence and the Sacred, Girard announced what would be the, the agenda of the rest of his work for the rest of his life, which was to make sense of the origins of religion and also understand the fate of religion in our modern secular societies. So Violence on the Sacred is very much driven by this question of how the sacred is generated. Unlike his previous work, The uh, Deceit, Desire, in the Novel, um, he was preoccupied with events and cultural phenomena of a much earlier time, a time stretching back into prehistory, even into the origins of the human species as a distinct biological entity, as we'll get to later, but particularly into the period in which human cultures and institutions first began to form into something we would recognize them as today. So, as a result, his, um, his evidence for um, exploring these phenomena tends to fall into two categories in this book. First of all, texts that seem to emerge out of later periods of the evolution of societies that had long had a, a complex and shifting relationship to religion and its institutions, such as ancient Greece and ancient Israel, which is to say the texts of Greek tragedy and the Hebrew Bible. So these, as you see already in the first pages of this book, are central sources of evidence for the phenomena Girard is trying to explore. But at the same time, he looks extensively into the vast anthropological literature, some of it about societies living in relatively primitive 
or um, pre-civilized um, ways in modern times that, that anthropologists could study. So these types of evidence are, it's important to note, not exactly direct evidence of the phenomena that he wants to describe, which essentially, again, have to do with the first emergence of this phenomenon of the sacred and of religion along with it, but rather they're um, closer in some sense to the origin than, than modern societies are. So, whereas what I just described was a modern example of how something like a sacred site has come into being, um, Girard is interested not just in examples like that of how particular religions came into being and came to practice the, the rites that they practice today, but rather how something like religion and something like the sacred came into being in the first place. How these, how these phenomena, which are so characteristic of a wide array of human societies, first emerged. Um, and it's important to note that he here is continuing a line of thinking that had been initiated by anthropologists in the 19th century and early 20th century, but had been largely abandoned by the field of anthropology as simply too speculative and simply not something that we can truly know anything about because it is too, too far in the past and whatever evidence we have today is too far removed from it. So it's important to note that while Girard takes inspiration from this anthropological work of figures like Emile Durkheim and J.G. Fraser, he at the same time um, is pursuing a line that actually sets him at odds with many of the anthropologists still operating in his own time, who had essentially given up on those bigger questions of where things like religion and the sacred first came from and settled for investigating more localized and immediate problems. So the ambition of this work of violence and the sacred cannot really be overstated. And in some sense, it's um, the first of a series of works whose ambition and scope make him um, quite an outlier among academics and intellectuals of his time. So in other words, um, in inquiring into the origins of religion was simply not something that the majority of people were attempting to do in the time when Gerard was writing. And this made him somewhat controversial and unpopular in some precincts. It's also worth noting that while his first book was a more obvious extension of his academic position as a professor of literature and of French literature in particular. His um, second book, Violence and the Sacred, seemed very much like the work of somebody stepping far outside of his immediate academic domain and attempting to um, tread on the academic turf of other disciplines, including anthropology and religion. So this was also a controversial aspect of this work, which um, would only continue to intensify with his subsequent books. So Girard um, 
treats this entire problem <clears throat> somewhat in the manner of a detective, right? He is he is looking at the available evidence that we have about the earliest, uh, at least, written records of these kinds of religious phenomena that he's interested in and trying to figure out what they can tell us about what really happened, what was really happening that, again, could bring about these kinds of transformations. It's worth noting also that Girard is often thought of as a religious thinker. In other words, particularly in his later work, He's often claimed by Catholics, in particular, as a Catholic philosopher. However, his approach to solving this mystery, which he has identified, which is how does the sacred emerge and how does religion emerge, is one that he sets out to answer in entirely secular terms, which is to say he seeks the origin of religion among human beings themselves and not as something that is handed down to them by any deity. So this um, actually puts him in a certain continuity with these earlier 19th century religious uh, anthropologists who at that time were rather scandalous for suggesting that we could think about religion as the product of human beings rather than as something that came down to them from God. And so Girard is resolutely secular in his framing of the issue. He thinks that in order to understand how you get something like transcendence, you have to look to the realm of imminence. In other words, to this realm of the profane or ordinary world of human beings and their lives and concerns and try to understand how it is that something like a sense of the sacred could emerge out of that. In other words, how the imminence could generate the transcendent. So, this question of where the sacred comes from is one that he addresses in the first couple of chapters through a particular institution and practice that is widely documented across a wide array of otherwise completely dissimilar cultures, and this is the practice of sacrifice. So sacrifice, the word literally means something along the lines of to make something sacred or making sacred. So in order to understand how things go from being profane or ordinary or imminence to being sacred and transcendent. He first looks at this process uh, or practice of sacrifice, which is, again, literally understandable as to make sacred. So how are things made sacred? Well, he begins with this uh, strange feature of sacrifice, which is that it is often treated with a certain um, embarrassment or shame or a kind of excessive um, protectiveness or caution by those who practice it. So this is worth noting because to the extent that sacrificial practices continue today, they are generally regarded as quite appalling and horrifying to modern secular people. 
and even modern religious people. So it's interesting to note that um, any kind of ritual sacrifice of an animal would probably attract far more controversy than the ordinary killing of animals in the context of farming. So in other words, um, whereas, sure, there are plenty of uh, animal rights activists and similar people who um, protest factory farming and things like that, the it is likely that, say, if I were to start a religion in which we made a weekly practice of sacrificing some animal, that this would attract far more controversy than the um, chicken farm down the street. So this is kind of a notable fact that I find people don't think about all that much, which is, why is it that ritualized killing of animals often appears today to be more scandalous, more shocking, and more um, morally repugnant than ordinary killing of animals? Well, presumably the intuitive explanation that most of us would have for this is that uh, sacrifice is useless. In other words, okay, when you kill uh, when you kill chickens in a farm, of course it might be nasty and uncomfortable, but it serves a function which is to provide protein to the people who consume them. So in other words, it's understandable in utilitarian terms. In other words, of producing a certain economic good or value that can be uh, consumed by people and can provide some practical benefit to their lives. Whereas if I were to, say, uh, start this imaginary religion where we carried out some kind of animal sacrifice, even if we killed far fewer animals than the farm down the street, we would probably be more controversial because we would be doing it for no, us, for no discernible reason, right? Um, in other words, the people who at least did not believe in our in the efficacy of our uh, hocus pocus rights would um, would simply find this gratuitous, right? It would not have any utilitarian explanation. So there are a couple examples of not exactly sacrificial but sort of parasacrificial practices in the modern world that I think illustrate this nicely. So think about fox hunting in England and bullfighting in Spain. So these are both um, practices of a kind of ritualized killing of an animal that has no utilitarian purpose, right? It's not for the purpose of producing food that can be sold and consumed. It's simply for its own sake. So these are both highly controversial. There have been varyingly successful attempts to ban them and so on. So there's a kind of discomfort around this um, phenomenon. And what this, what this reveals is that um, we seem to regard sacrifice as useless and deeply irrational, right? So in other words, if we, if we think about forms of killing that at least have some kind of, whether of animals or of humans, that at least have some sort of ostensibly utilitarian explanation, then we seem to be a bit more accepting of them. Whereas sacrifice appears to be, again, to our modern eyes, something highly irrational and highly um, gratuitous because it serves no discernible practical purpose. So this, in a sense, is um, relevant to the way that Girard understands sacrifice because... 
He wants to understand a context in which sacrifice could be practiced and understood by those who practice it as having a necessary and uh, practical function for the society in which they live, which is a, an extremely strange and counterintuitive notion to us because, again, it appears to us excessive and essentially useless. So, um, this also brings up a point that I think is important, which is the discomfort that we have with sacrifice, even though these earlier societies obviously practiced it and did not repudiate it in the way that we do, the discomfort that we have seems to be something that they felt as well. And Girard discusses this in the first few pages of the book when he notes that the sacrificial act um, appears at times as a sacred obligation to be neglected at grave peril, at other times as a sort of criminal activity entailing perils of equal gravity. So the point is, even though there is a, a sense of its necessity, there is also a concern about it. There is also a sense that there's something dangerous, that, that in carrying out these practices, there's a kind of playing with fire that's going on. So basically the, the problem here is that we, we have this uh, phenomenon that seems to be on one hand utterly useless and, the, and, there, and nevertheless to be viewed as a sacred obligation by the people who practice it in, in many times and places historically. And on one hand as something that is sacred and necessary, but then as something that is also potentially quite dangerous and carries all sorts of grave implications that need to be uh, mean that it need to be treated with caution. So this kind of um, complicated, uh, contradictory set of qualities is precisely what fascinated many of these earlier religious anthropologists in in their studies of the concept of and practice of sacrifice, but that Gerard feels they did not manage to resolve. And so he says they tend to fall back into fancy words like ambivalence in order to describe it without really trying to account for the origin of that ambivalence, or rather explain why the origins of sacrifice and the purpose that it served might, might help resolve that seeming contradiction or sense of its ambivalence. So I'd like to highlight just three essential points about sacrifice that Girard makes in this. Um, again, his first major attempt at elucidating it. And the first is this problem of violent reciprocity, which we could see as a continuation of his concerns in Deceit, Desire, in the novel, where there is a sense that the uh, people who figure in these novels that he's discussing are caught up in these tit-for-tat conflicts that because of the, again, mimetic nature of human beings, um, always threaten to spill out into all-out war of some sort and result, and result in this sense of impending apocalypse that he describes as part of the sensibility of 
Dostoevsky in particular. So, again, in his first book, we have this basic problem where because people imitate each other's desires, their desires converge on the same objects, and then they go, they come into conflict with each other, and then others come into conflict with them. And the result is that people become both violent antagonists and um, doubles to each other, right? They become undifferentiated through the kind of cascading spread of this contagious violence. So this, a version of this problem at least, appears in Deceit, Desire in the novel. But there it is located in a particular moment in European history where certain governing hierarchies had collapsed or been weakened, and a principle of egalitarianism had been forwarded in which people no longer existed in these strict um, hierarchical relations to one another, and therefore could more easily become competitors for the same objects, and therefore could more easily come into conflict. So in Violence on the Sacred, Girard hypothesizes a similar situation coming about in early human history or human prehistory, um, when humans had no regulating or mediating institutions that could guide the resolution of conflict, and had also arrived at this point of heightened mimetic capacity that enabled this kind of conflict to come into play, and that ensured that it could consume the entire society, which taken to the extreme could mean uh, the, the essential dissolution of that society into violence, into a kind of self-destructive um, self-immolation. So this, this phenomenon, which he associates with well-documented historical phenomena like blood feuds and vendettas, Right, which are common in societies lacking um, institutions like the judicial system, which um, mediate conflicts and provide neutral forms of resolution. That this type of threat um, was omnipresent. And so this problem of violent reciprocity was a, a constant threat hanging over the head of these earliest human societies. And so this is the situation in which, as we've already discussed somewhat, he posits the emergence of first what he calls the surrogate victim, which is another way of saying the scapegoat, who is the figure who enables the resolution of this kind of internecine conflict by becoming the, the conduit for all of this violence that is consuming the society to be discharged from it onto the outside. So what type of person or figure is this, this figure of the scapegoat? Well, in Violence in the Sacred, Gerard says that it is necessary for this type of figure to be sacrificable. So what does this mean? Well, it means that they need to be a figure who can in some way be outside of these, um, these networks of violent reciprocity. So he says, society seeks to deflect upon a relatively indifferent victim, a sacrificable victim, 
the violence that would otherwise be vented on its own members, the people it most desires to protect. So a sacrificable victim would be one that is to some extent outside of these networks of violent reciprocity. And here we might think of the situation of kinship and how in these scenarios of vendetta or blood feud, the kinship relation is the one that obligates reprisals. In other words, if someone from another family or clan kills my brother, then I'm obligated to kill them. So, and then, of course, that obligates someone from the other clan to kill me, and so on. So, this basic problem is, um, is the, the problem of, of reciprocity, and it's particularly heightened in which the, the reciprocity takes place among these, these kinship networks that determine obligation. So what does this mean? Well, it means that figures who, to some extent, stand outside of these networks and therefore are less likely to invite rep reprisals, if killed, make the best scapegoats. So he lists a number of figures who can fit this role, but it's interesting to note that this figure could be both the social outcast, in other words, uh, a figure who's sort of um, on the margins of the society. And if you look at the, the literature on, on witch hunts in early modern Europe, this is often a pattern there as well, right? These, these figures who are burned as witches tend to be socially marginal people who often literally live on the edge of the community. But interestingly, at the same time, he says um, uh, a king or a, a kind of leader can serve this function. So this, is, this seems strange, but part of the idea here is that because the king or leader is set above the society, that also means that the king or leader is set apart from the society. In other words, is, is to some extent outside of these networks which are defined by a relative parity or equality between the participants. So this means, and, you know, there are, a, there's a great deal of anthropological documentation of this, that you actually have societies in which the king is simply someone who is ritually sacrificed, and that is built into the ritual sacrificial practices of the society. So, um, again, the the basic, the core contribution here is the idea that um, sacrifice, which again seems to us today quite a strangely useless and gratuitous practice, has this necessary function in societies that lack other regulatory institutions that might mediate between parties engaged in some kind of escalating process of reciprocal violence. And so sacrifice is what fulfills that function in the absence of such other institutions. And it does this by um, enabling a different kind of violence, which is the violence channeled against the sacrificable victim, which is to say the surrogate victim or scapegoat. And here's the second point. Sacrificial practices in the ritual form emerge out of this originally spontaneous process whereby victims are selected, 
the the violence consuming the group is discharged onto the victims, which enables a certain kind of relief and a kind of pacification. And so um, sacrifice then becomes a way of regularly maintaining the order that has been reestablished through these, um, again, spontaneous uh, collective murders. So he roots the sacrificial function in this much more primordial process, which he argues, I mean, we can't have any, and, and we know in, in some sense we can't have any direct evidence of, but which um, we can sort of see the, the aftershocks of, not only in sacrifice itself and in its ongoing status within numerous societies across much of history, but also in the issue that he discusses in the second chapter, which is the sacrificial crisis. So what is the sacrificial crisis? Well, it's a situation in which the um, the salvific or pacifying power of sacrifice to forestall or resolve violent conflict by channeling the, the community's violence outward towards this victim. That the problem here is that when there is any kind of mixing up of sacred violence and profane violence, there is a risk that the sacred violence becomes caught up in and ends up giving rise to the kinds of reprisals that sacrifice was specifically supposed to avoid or put a halt to. So he discusses some examples of this that occur in Greek tragedy, including Heracles. And basically the the point here is to claim that this kind of violence that is used as a cure for violence is itself dangerous, right? It has a a potential to um, reverse back into the opposite function from the one it is supposed to perform by um, getting caught up in these reciprocal violent antagonisms and reprisals that potentially cause the society to collapse. So in other words, this violence that is embodied in sacrifice, which is the, the curative violence, the violence that, pu- that purges violence from the society, is, in a sense, um, always a risk of leading to the other kind of violence if it is not kept sufficiently separate from it. So what this means is that the, the violence of sacrifice needs to be cordoned off, right? And this is why sacred spaces are physically... Um, separated out and and kept strictly um, kind of hygienically pure in relation to the world outside them. So he compares the um, practices of uh, ritual practices of priests with the technicians and nuclear power plants. Right, they're they're in contact with a kind of radioactive radioactivity, a kind of danger that threatens to spill out into the society and poses a grave danger to it. So this, he argues, is what accounts for this ambivalence about sacrifice, right? This sense of it as having this 
curative power, but at the same time as something that will possibly um, reverse back into the very thing that it is attempts that it is an attempt to cure. So it's interesting also here to note that he compares sacrifice at several points to modern technological innovations, including the one I just mentioned, nuclear power, right? And part of the point of this and why it's interesting is that, and we'll get into this some more later, there's a notion that sacrifice and sacrificial violence are the original innovation of humanity. In other words, they, there, is a, there is a problem, which is the problem of reciprocal violence, and the discovery of sacrifice and of, of sacrificial substitution as a cure for that violence is a kind of technological innovation, right? It's what Peter Thiel and explicitly describes this way as a, a zero to one innovation, right? It's the, it's the first thing that, um, that um, essentially originates human society as something distinct by creating the possibility of institutions that um, substitute one thing for another, right? So that, in other words, lift the problem onto another plane through this process of substitution. And then the substitution repeats itself, as we see, for example, in the shift from human to animal sacrifice that occurs in many societies. So, in other words, humans, human sacrifice, the original human victim substitute the original spontaneous surrogate victim in a ritual way. Later, the animal victims can substitute for the human victim, and so on. So, this in, in effect is Girard's answer to this problem of how the sacred emerges. It emerges through the resolution of violent reciprocity, in violent unanimity against the surrogate victim or scapegoat, which is then ritualistically repeated as a form of peacekeeping in the, in the mode of sacrifice. However, because this problem of reprisals and reciprocal violence re-emerging um, continues to be embodied in the sacrificial practices that first um, suppressed it or, or moved beyond it. Um, these practices continue to evolve so as to attempt to, um, you know, continue to put aside that danger, right? It's, it's like a, a need to update a vaccine to, and vaccines are another thing that Gerard compares this to, right? Because they are, just as the vaccine is the use of a a, a certain concentration of a disease to prevent the disease. A vaccine, a, a, a violent uh, sacrifice is the use of a certain concentration of violence to prevent violence. So just like vaccines need to be updated to keep up with the mutations of the um, viruses they're attempting to forestall, similarly, um, sacrificial rites and practices evolve because this problem continues to be um, resurgent and continues to need to be held at bay in different ways. So this, again, is essentially his answer to this question, where does the sacred come from? It comes from the 
resolution of violent reciprocity through violent unanimity, which is then transmuted into ritual. So we will continue to explore this next week in the form of myth, which is, Girard argues, one of the main forms of evidence we can use to understand and to take stock of this process as it occurred in various societies in a wide array of cultures around the world. I did want to conclude, though, by noting a few continuities between Deceit, Desire in the Novel and Violence in the Sacred. So obviously, again, it's a major shift in, in focus and in emphasis and in driving concerns, particularly towards something far more um, overarching and ambitious than Deceit, Desire in the Novel, which is certainly not an unambitious work in itself. But just three continuities. One is a continued preoccupation with this problem of sameness and conflict. In other words, with people coming into conflict, not because they are different, but because they are the same. Um, In other words, because they want the same things. And because they are um, imitative of each other's both acquisitive and violent impulses. Second of all, a focus on the idea that crisis of the sort that threatens to undermine societies emerges out of a loss of distinctions. In other words, that the disappearance of distinctions and hierarchies, we might think in Deceit, Desire, in the novel of the idea that a shift towards an egalitarian society in which hierarchies are no longer clear, multiply conflict by increasing the number of people who can compete for the same things. Here the idea is that um, when we have a loss of distinction between sacred and profane violence, this precipitates the sacrificial crisis that potentially undermines the society and causes it to descend back into chaos. So things need to be kept distinct and separate in order to avoid the um, impending dangers of reciprocal violence, which always loom over human beings. So he um, uses this speech from uh, Shakespeare's Troilus and Cressida in order to um, illustrate this idea, which is the loss of degree, right? Of, again, a kind of hierarchical distinction that keeps things in their place and prevents this kind of undifferentiation that creates universal reciprocal conflict. The the third and final point I'll make is there's a continuity, despite the shift in preoccupations, in the uh, use of evidence. So just as in Deceit, Desire in the novel, novels are seen as as a source of truth. They're seen as something that can reveal the... The, the reality about desire, right? Similarly here, um, it's literary texts most fundamentally, especially the um, ancient Greek tragedies and the um, texts from the Hebrew Bible that lead us to the truth of this kind of danger of conflict and of the various uh, ways that humans have set about to try to resolve and forestall these conflicts. So 
In other words, literature and literary texts as a source of truth continues to be a methodological defining feature of Girard's work in this book as well as the previous one. And we will continue to um, develop that point in our discussion of the scapegoat for next week, where we will focus in particular on Girard's method of interpreting myth, which is quite a unique and controversial one, and I think sums up the particular types of truth that he thinks can be derived from mythical texts, which he will then go on to differentiate in a stronger way than he does in Violence and the Sacred from the biblical texts, right? You'll notice that here the biblical texts and the, the Greek tragedies are seen as essentially offering similar types of insight, whereas later on he will make a stronger distinction between the mythical and the biblical texts as both offering insights, but um, to different degrees and in quite different ways. So those are some through lines to continue to focus on as we move forward, um, particularly towards the scapegoat and things hidden in the next couple of weeks. So thank you, and I look forward to discussing all of this with you.